I want to talk to you today about imperfections. I want to talk to you about how we can use imperfections and how God would choose to use imperfections. We really have a choice to use them, and we usually choose to either condemn others or condemn ourselves for our imperfections, or to see them really as a venue through which God is glorified. Today, in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, we're going to be reading about the experience of a blind man. And we're going to be led by him. Now, someone on the worship team remembered a, uh, um, an etching, uh, a, a wood carving, really, by, uh, put, that, put that up, would you please, by Georges Rouault. He is a French artist, and he did a collection towards the end of World War I that was very interesting indeed. And one of the portraits, one of the, one of the works was this one. Sometimes a blind man has consoled the scene. An interpretation was given to this, and let me see if I can just summarize it for you. I want you to see that in this scene, the roles are reversed from what we usually see. You all have seen a seeing person, a sighted person, helping a blind person down the street, leading a blind person so that he would not stumble. I want you to see that in this particular portrait, it is the blind person who is leading the sighted person. Those dark, empty sockets are more than compensated for by the positioning of the face, because the face is pointed toward heaven. And there is the nuance here that if our attention is on eternity, somehow our feet will land in the right spot. And there is the person who is impaired, happens to be sighted, but he's impaired not because of his sight so much as the position of his sight. His head is downcast, looking at the things of the earth, and therefore he needs to be guided by a larger picture. All right, if you would take that away and let me help us be guided by this blind man this morning. If you have your scriptures, you can follow along. This entire chapter is about this particular uh, event in the gospel. And we, of course, can't read every verse, but we'll get the general um, idea of this great story. Starts out with words that I love. I see them regularly in scripture or they're implied regularly. And as he passed by, our, our ministry here is along the way. That's, that's almost our motto. It's the way God unfolds ministry right before us. It's the way Jesus did most of his ministry. He just went along his day and God presented opportunities for ministry right in front of him. That is the part of the, half of the definition of the distributed church. That wherever you are, God is going to give you ministry right in front of you. And that's the way you do it. As you pass by, you notice those who can use your help, those who need encouragement, those who need what you have. And you give it on the spot at the time. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. But it was in order 
that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let's pause there momentarily, and I want you to understand a very important theological principle. Actually, there are a couple of them here. One is that any time we see suffering in the world, it, it poses a theological problem for us. And, and, and that's exactly, there was an assumption among the Jews that all of the problems and all of the suffering in the world came specifically as a result of a particular sin. And that, that could be that this, parent, this man's parents had sinned, and, and so the sins of the father were visited on the son, so to speak. Or it could be that, and since he was blind from birth, it would have to be that the, that the, that the man sinned in utero, uh, which was not totally out of the question, because some rabbis believed that was possible uh, following the story of uh, Jacob and Esau in the womb. Uh, but, but the principle that Jesus uses here is the one he often used, and that was that he wasn't confined to the choices he was given. As a matter of fact, he corrected, he corrected a theological assumption. The assumption was this, that the effect is always after the cause. We live in a world of cause and effect. And so when something goes wrong, we immediately want to know whose fault it is. Who's to blame? What went wrong that this particular thing happened? But of course, we are citizens of eternity where there is no time. And so therefore, in our world, in God's world, the effect, watch this, can come before the cause can come when the cause has not yet been here. Jesus said this day, don't always look into the past, look into the future. If you want the reason for something, don't look for the, the blame, look for the purpose. And it has not yet been revealed by simply looking at the problem. Now this is very important for us to understand because some of you are very Jewish in your orientation, uh, or very Western in your orientation. It fits both. And you think, boy, I'm going through in my life because somebody made a huge mistake. And if it wasn't me, who was it? <laughs> and and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going through this because either God's mad at me, or, or uh, somebody is, has it out for me, or, uh, you know, and, and you just can't figure it out, and you're terribly frustrated. And you really believe that this thing should not have happened. I want to help you broaden your theological perspective this morning. I want you to understand that what you're going through or the impairments that you have, and this is very, very important, are there for a reason. I want you to, I want you to ask yourself this. Do you really believe that God is so powerful that he can use what doesn't work in your life as well as he can use what does work in your life? Do you believe in a God so sovereign that he can take what is injured and what is ineffective and use it every bit as effectively as he can use that which you see as strength and the rest of the world praises as an attribute? Because that's what this is about. And if you believe that he can use 
that weakness, or what the world sees as a weakness, but what he sees as a purpose, then you can be led. And you can have the blindness that you thought was such a problem turn into such a blessing. Now, Jesus goes ahead and says to them, we, that's all of us, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. And while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. There are opportunities that present themselves to us that must be acted upon when they present themselves. There will come a time when the time will pass. Now that doesn't mean life is ruined, but it just means that you don't, God doesn't take the Sabbath off. And that's what we're about to find out. He doesn't say, well, uh, I can't work. It's the Sabbath. Um, When the needs are there and you're there, why not? When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied to the, uh, the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now what was that all about? Why is it that sometimes God just cures on the spot, there it is, all well, and sometimes, many times as a matter of fact, he uses the material of the world and a process to heal. Why didn't he just cure everybody on the spot? Why did he go through the trouble when he could have, we, all, we both know, he could, have, he could have healed that blind man on the spot through the use of no physical means whatsoever. Why did he put the man through a process? Well, some people see very deep symbolism in this whole scene. They, they see him being sent to the, to the pool uh, of Soleim. It, it's really, Shiloh is the, is the old name for it. And, and it's in Jerusalem. And it is, it is the result of a conduit that was built. And the spring of water, a spring, carries water under the city and feeds this pool. Now it was built by a king who anticipated an onslaught, an army, an attack against the city. And they knew that one way that they, that they would defeat Jerusalem was to cut off their water supply. So this king, in anticipation of that, built this huge conduit through which the water could be sent, springing up as a continuing resource for the people who were safe inside. Now, you don't need to know the scriptures very well to know uh, all the symbolism of that. Jesus, not long before this in the, in the gospel, has declared himself the, 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 the well of living water, uh, ever springing. And those who drink of me uh, will, will never thirst again. Um, those of you uh, know that Jesus was referring to himself as the one sent from God. And that as long as the one sent was the one sending uh, to that wellspring of living water, then, then their great symbolism of, 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 of Jesus being the, the source of ongoing health. I don't get that complicated with it. Let me tell you why I think he did it. I think he did it because God isn't just about healing. He's about relationships. And I think that most of the time, the reason God doesn't do something immediately is because he cares more about the relationship than he cares about the result. He cares more about what's going to happen after the healing than he does just about the healing. And so, here is a man who 
doesn't anticipate God intervening in his life. A representative man, by the way, because all of us are blind in our sin. And none of us have the capability of, see, of seeing before God himself intervenes in our life and gives us the capability of seeing spiritual things. It says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man can't grasp spiritual things. So there's no way we can ever get there on our own until God at first intervenes before we even grasp spiritual things on down the line. This is a representative man. But I think that Jesus wanted to begin a relationship with this guy, so he gave him something to do. He gave him a voice to respond to. And many times in your life, when things don't happen immediately, he's going to carry you through a process that begins to build your relationship with him because that's more important to him than just the relief of your suffering. And that's more important to you, by the way, than just the relief of your suffering. It's the bonding that takes place. We're all about, we're, most of us want relationships in this world. We're, we're, we're so, it's so key to us. I don't know why we can't transfer that to God, but it's so key to us in this world. We build relationships with each other. We even build relationships with our pets, for crying out loud. Uh, most of you have very good relationships with your pets, better than you have with people. But I was, I was driving down the road the other day, as a matter of fact, and, and, uh, and I noticed on 436 across from Dunkin' Donuts, this is the way I locate everything in town, <laughs> where, it, where there is an eatery nearby. Well, I'll always give you directions that has a restaurant involved. But anyhow, this place is right across, it's a little strip mall, right across from Dunkin' Donuts. And I'm driving by and I see this sign on this, on this store, self-service dog wash. I thought, that is very strange. And I, so I just drove by. And every day I drive by and, and I think, self-service dog wash. Now, why would somebody take their dog to a store to wash him? I just didn't get it. You know, you got your tub at home, you got your hose, you got your, you know, why would you take a dog? Or why wouldn't you just send a dog and say, here, wash my dog and be back later? Why? Self-service dog wash. So finally, yesterday, I went. I couldn't resist <laughs> And frankly, I needed a sermon illustration. We're always looking for sermon illustrations. So, so I went in. I said, tell me about a self-service dog wash. Oh, she said, let me show you. So she takes me back to this thing. I said, I haven't got a dog, but I just want to know. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, so she takes me back. And she, it's just you go in and they have these little booths, like little private booths. And, you can, and they have a, a, a tub that's about... You know, normal height. You know, I'd probably have to stand on a stool or something. But they have a tub, and they and they have a ramp, and you can if you got a big dog and you can't lift the dog in, the dog can just walk up the ramp and get in the tub. And then you hook the dog up, and they got the hose there, and they got your they got your flea thing, and the hose and the special brushes and the and the blow dry, blow dry. And I'm thinking to myself, this is odd. Why would somebody bring their dog to a special place to wash them? And then I'm thinking to myself, it's because they want to get close to that dog. And they want to take it, they want to treat their dog to a special place of washing. <laughs> I really think that's the case. You know, I don't want my dog in my tub. I want to take him to a special place. But I want to wash him because it's my dog. Well, I think that there are times when... It is valuable just to do it yourself because it builds the relationship. I'm not talking about the dog here. I'm talking about the Lord. 
I'm talking about how, how God will have us go through certain times. It won't be automatic. It'll be a long haul, but it's because of the relationship. And I think that's exactly what was going on here. And it's a relationship that will be completed later in the scripture. Now, he goes back, he, go, he comes back seeing, and, and his friends just can't believe it. Neighbors are going, oh, that's him. No, that's not him. Just looks like him. Couldn't be him. And they keep saying, it's me. It's me. And they said, well, how did it happen? I said, well, Jesus. And they said, where's Jesus? And he, and he says, I don't know. You, you've got to catch the irony here. He'd never seen Jesus before. Jesus could have been standing right next to him. He wouldn't have known who it was. So he looks around and goes, I don't know. Well, Jesus wasn't there. And, and, so, and, and they took him to the Pharisees. Now, it's, it, there's, there's a great deal of speculation of why they would take him to the Pharisees. Uh, some to have him declared, he, declared healed, but, but, but many think that it's just because the, the, the Pharisees had been running Jesus down so badly, and they just were curious as to what uh, they'd say. So they take him to the Pharisees, and it says in verse 14, Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. By the way, Jesus, by doing this, broke four Sabbath laws by healing this guy. <clears throat> Again, therefore, the Pharisees were also asking him how he received his sight. And he said, well, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he did not keep the Sabbath. <laughs> I got a question for you. Why, why is it? Why is it that the Sabbath went from a day? I mean, it's even like this kind of today. The Sabbath went from a day that was so treasured as a day of rest and renewal, a day that was totally positive in its orientation, a day of celebration of the provision and the goodness of God. How could a day like that degenerate into a day of prohibition? of looking at your neighbor and saying, you're not supposed to be doing that. What happened there? What's up with that? Well, I got a little theory. Would you like to hear it? Okay, good. It's only partial. It's only partial. It's not that it doesn't, but, but I think that the longer something goes on, the more it tends to get rigid and negative because it becomes set in its ways, so to speak. Now, I know this is true with people. As a matter of fact, I was reading a, uh, uh, a, a, one of my scientific studies, one of the, one of the ones I'd love to, to investigate. The other day, you can read about this in the May issue of, uh, wait a minute, Personality and Social Psychology, if you're so inclined. But this is a study on why older people get more rigid. And, and the title of the study, which really attracted me, is Old People Are More Prejudiced, But They Can't Help It. And I thought, what's that all about? So I, so I read this study. It was, it, it's done recently at Ohio State University by Professor Von Hippel, <laughs> Irish guy. <laughs> and, and they did this, and they, and they wondered, is it, is it true that, that old people's prejudices come out more? Uh, and they get kind of re-prejudiced after they look like they've conquered it or whatever. And they discovered this about people as they get older. See if this is not true with you. I'm... I'm past 50, so I'm starting to discover old things about myself here. Um, you know, there is, let me, let me see if I can, there is a deferential, inhibitory, um, deferential, inhibitory um, capability that diminishes the older you get. Now, let me tell you what I just said. It's harder to focus. 
When, when you're young, you can have all kinds of things going on around you. Like young people, they can, they can literally watch TV and do their homework at the same time. I mean, you say, no, you can't do that. But yeah, they can. I mean, they can have all kinds of stuff going on. And if they need to focus on this, they just focus on this and that all goes away. And then they can focus on this and that all goes away. Or, or, or somehow it mixes. It's okay. But the older you get, the more that starts to bug you. If you're trying to concentrate on this and this is coming out, you don't want that. I mean, I, I know this is true for myself. When you were, when you were um, uh, younger, you used to love to drive with a lot of noise in the car. You know, you could listen to whatever conversation you want to listen to. Now, if I'm driving and I don't know exactly where we're going, I got to go, shh, everybody be quiet. <laughs> I can't concentrate. I've got to look. What happened? My differential inhibitor doesn't work anymore. <laughs> it, I, I've, I eliminate the competition because I can't inhibit according to my, my a, attention deference. You see? I, I've, I've, I've just got to get it out of the way. I've got I've to get it so I can focus. Well, I believe that happens with people, but I, ha- I believe it happens with, with, with institutionalism as well. That, that there was a time when, when we loved the ambivalence and the ambiguity and, 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 and the mixture of everything that was happening. It was exciting to us. When this place got founded, man, there was nothing but positives here. I mean, you couldn't, whatever you could do, and you could do positive, have at it. You go do it, man. They, we're for you. And, and we were, and there were just a bunch of, there was just a little group of people that bought this old dump of a roller skating rink. And man, they just had this vision. And it didn't matter that nobody could quite name it. They just, well, they'd get there somehow, because God would take them there. Now, 15 years later, do you know how many policies we were forming? <laughs> policy after policy. We got a lot of people now. You got to have policy. And policy after policy. Where does that fit in the policy? Doesn't fit. Got to make another policy. Policy, policy. Why? Well, because some sense we need some organization, but in another sense, we're just getting kind of old. And, and, and if, we can't, if we can't cope with it, we try to eliminate it. And I believe that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees started out just wanting to give their life to God. Pharisee was the most honorable profession because they totally dedicated their lives to God. And now they had come to a place where they couldn't even see him when he's standing right in front of their face. Well, I believe, and we've got to watch this as a church, but we've got to watch it as people too, that the whole essence of seeing through the eyes of eternity is being open enough to see God in ways that you didn't expect him, including your impairments, including the things that don't seem like they're working in your life, but yet they don't go away, including those long times of struggle and frustration. Can God use those? This story says not only can he, but he will. They have a purpose. And just because you haven't figured it out yet doesn't mean it in there. These Pharisees go toward their line of questioning, trying to, trying to get Jesus out of the way, trying to eliminate it because he's a bother. They've got the power. And so they, they call the parents in. Of course, the parents are scared that they're going to get 
um, um, excluded from the synagogue. It says right here. Said they're going to get, they were afraid to get kicked out of the synagogue. Now, there are stages that you did that, by the way. Uh, one stage came uh, the first time for anywhere from 10 to 30 days. You could be like put on probation and nobody could come within six feet of you. Uh, ostracized in that manner. And, and then the second stage would be nobody could buy uh, or, or, or trade with you. Um, and then the third stage is that you were, uh, you were excommunicated from uh, not only the synagogue, but the nation Israel. I mean, they were, they, they were scared to death of that. Think of how tough that was for them. They'd seen their son blind all those years, and they wanted to celebrate, and all they, all they could do was be afraid they were going to get kicked out. That was a terrible position. But nonetheless, they couldn't bite the bullet. They were just scared. So when they, asked, when they were brought before the Pharisees and they started getting uh, cross-examined, they said, uh, we don't know. Ask him. And they shifted it all on their kid. Now, he said, he's of age. Anybody 13 years or older was of age. That was, that was declared a man. So, so they bring him in the second time. Well, this, this kid, I don't know how old he is, but this kid is grateful to Christ. And so he just gets a little ornery with the Pharisees. You can just see it in his answers. I love this, by the way. They bring him in the second time and they said, come on, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. They're referring to Jesus. And he says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner, but one thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. Well, that just makes them mad. That just ticks them off. And so they said, well, how did it happen? And then he says, he gets kind of a little ornery again, a little snotty. He says, I told you once, weren't you listening? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh man, they got revved up. They said, we're Moses disciples. You know, they said, and, and, and in saying that saying, we know all we need to know. We don't even know where this man's from. And then the, the guy just got real ornery. And he looked at him and said, hmm, you don't know where he's from. He heals a blind man. You know everything, right? He heals a blind man who's been blind from birth, and you don't even know where he's from. Hmm. Boy, they're so mad, and it just says right here, you were born entirely in your sins, and you're teaching us. See, they use his imperfections to condemn him. And then they kick him out. Now, let's stop right there, because I want to, talk to you just for a second. What does it look like to have imperfections where finally you begin to get an inkling of why they were there? Finally, you begin to get an inkling that somehow God is in this thing. I got a letter this week from, uh, from an attorney who goes here. Some of you know John Mitchell. I love John. He's a, such, a, such a neat guy. Preacher's kid. I have a heart for preacher's kids. And, and he wrote, uh, he was doing a daily Bible, uh, uh, personal Bible study, and, and, uh, and he knew what the subject was. So he just wrote me a little bit of his story. When he was a kid, he went through a stuttering problem. I know some of you know that it's fairly normal. It's not at all unusual to have a kid that goes through a spell of stuttering. And usually it clears up in a, in a, in a while. But his didn't. Now, he was in a very good church. Church loved him, very good school, school loved him, small town in, in Virginia. 
And, uh, and everybody just loved him and knew him, and, and he stuttered, but nobody said anything. I mean, everybody just accepted him how he was. You know, that's John. And they didn't even think of it. They just had the patience to wait until he got his words out. And so his, he didn't have any self-esteem problems because nobody made a deal of it. And then when he was in sixth grade, he moved down to Orlando with his family. And, uh, and nobody knew him, and nobody understood. He said when he went to school, the teacher would ask a question. He'd just raise his hand and start to answer, and he'd have trouble getting the words out. And, of course, all the kids would laugh, and it hurt his feelings. And one day he said he even thought he saw the, the teacher snicker, which just crushed him. One day he's really down. He went home. He's laying on his bed. He's crying. And his mama come in. And his mom put her hand on his back. And he turned over and he said, Mama, why did God make me, make me like this? Why didn't he make me perfect? Why didn't, why didn't he make me be able to talk like the other kids could talk? And his mother had known the Lord long enough to say this. John, God doesn't make mistakes. You are perfect, just like you are. And if you have what seems to you to be an impairment, somehow God, who made you perfect, is going to use that. You've got to believe it. Well, that was good enough for him, because he had a lot of confidence in his mom. Some years later, that speech impediment did clear up. Today... John is an attorney. For those people for whom life has dealt an unfair blow, people who have an impairment that they can't do anything about, they never expected. Now, it's wonderful to have a competent attorney. But what is even better is having someone who can identify with a client who knows what it's like to be misunderstood, who knows what it's like to, to have injustice in your life, who knows what it's like to be frustrated and not to do a thing, not to be able to do a thing about it. And John understands today, he didn't need the stuttering. His clients needed him to stutter. You understand? It's so important for us if we don't have the answers right now, to have confidence that in eternity we will know there will be a greater purpose. I keep, I keep looking at what's happened with Mandy Bradshaw. Some of you know Mandy, that she was in a car accident some nine months ago and has been in a semi-comatose state ever since. But I don't just look at Mandy. I look at what's happened to our church. I can't tell you what I see in our church that family has not seen a day go by that meals haven't been carried in. Nine months. There are a hundred people in this church. Five people on a team. Three teams a day that go to her house and give her therapy. A hundred people. But I can't tell you what's happening in the lives of those people. See, you can't go in there and not be grateful to God for what you've got. You go in thinking you got problems. You come out thinking, i got no problems. You can't go in there with this cliche kind of faith that God's just this happy boy, and, you know, and, and, and not be faced with the reality 
of suffering and not have to go deep with God, not have your, your relationship with God change. Please understand me. I'm not saying that this makes it all worth it to the Bradshaw family and they're all so happy for this suffering. Please. But there is something that is coming. Whether Mandy ever gets healed or not, I'm still counting on her physical healing. I'm still counting on that. But there is something to the timing. There's something to the purpose, the unfolding purpose. And there's something to the future that we will see the benefit of her impairment. There is something to the future that we will see the benefit of your impairment, the benefit of my impairment, that the glory of God will come out stronger than it ever has. And one more thing, and then I'll close. It wasn't just about the healing or non-healing. It wasn't just about the perspective. It was about the community. That day, this man got kicked out of the synagogue. No surprise there, because he wouldn't forsake the one who had healed him. And with that, Jesus came and completed his healing by making him a part of a new community. Because healing is not just about physically getting better. Healing is about fitting together. It says here that Jesus, in verse 35, heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What we're about to do now is partake of what Irenaeus called the medicine of eternity. There is in these elements the impartation of the perspective of God. There is the forming of a community. And we're going to partake of them as small pockets of community today in ways that we haven't before. But first, let me pray for us. God, thank you for our impairments. I know that is strange for us to pray. It's strange for me to hear my own words. But God, I have confidence that with every part in our life that does not work, you have a purpose, just as you have a purpose for every part that does work. I have confidence, as all of us do together, that you have all of the power of eternity to make something matter, even if it's negative, to make it matter just as powerfully as the, as the positive matters. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you today. We partake of communion out of one who was made weak, and out of his weakness came all the strength of eternity applied to those who remain weak, and out of our weakness comes all of your adequacy. Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.